I thought about what is a normal family? How about that? Do you have a normal family? Don't answer that. <laughs> and I thought about that because I'm, I'm preaching on the road to normal uh, this morning. Um, and I'll give you the context of that in just a moment. I, I was asking someone earlier before, all, before praise team practice and all that. I said, what is your definition of normal? And the one word that she could come up with was routines. Something that's a routine that you go through. Well, that probably is part of normal. Actually, the definition, one definition says conforming to a standard, usual, typical, or expected. So it could be what one is accustomed to. You're, um, what, what, what do you normally do every morning? What do you normally do during the day? How do you, every evening, and I am a very much a creature of habit. So I'll go past where I need to turn because if I'm used to going to a certain destination, I just go there and then I realize, well, I got to turn around and go back. Nobody else is like that in here, I know. Uh, think about this. On that Tuesday morning, it was probably a very normal day, September the 11th, 2001. Everybody was going about their day, probably normal. You know, have breakfast, breakfast get the kids ready for school get some coffee, um, get in your car, drive to work, or catch a transit, you know, whatever, you know, homemaker just doing laundry that morning. Everybody was probably doing something normal that day, but normal crashed that day when that jet crashed into that first World Trade Center towers. And a lot of us in this room will never forget that. Um, we happened to be at a presbyter's meeting at the, at the Montgomery District Council office, and uh, Sister Glover walked in and told us that a, a plane had crashed into the, one of the towers and to pray for her niece um, and, and her nephew by marriage worked there, and, um, and he turned out to be one of the fatalities. He worked up in one of the business sectors up above, so... Uh, we, we, normal has changed, has it not? We're in a new normal, um, especially if you go traveling. I've lost one pocket knife because of all this uh, stuff. You know, I forgot to take it out of my, my pocket, and I dumped on my, my chains there in that little disc, and, uh, and I looked at it and I says, oh, man. <laughs> and the guy says, you can't get that on, on the plan. I said, I know. I said, just throw it away. You know, it was a K single blade knife, man. It just like broke my heart to let go of that. But I, I, I try to remember, you know, metal detectors, all that changed. I remember our son getting off from a visit to my parents. We lived in Jacksonville, Florida, and, and he went to spend a little bit of the summer with my dad with the cows, and daddy worked that poor kid. It was good for him. But he got off the plane, and I says, you smell like cantaloupe. And he said, yeah, Grandma sent me two cantaloupes. And she had two big, he had two big old cantaloupes in the bag. I said, she sent you cantaloupes? He says, yeah, she thought you'd like cantaloupe. I said, yeah, I like it. I said, but boy, you smell like you've been washed in cantaloupe juice. <laughs> and, uh, but that, you couldn't do that now. You can't, you can't even carry a bottle of water on there. You have to have maybe an empty bottle. You see how normal changed? Just with that one incident. So you've heard the statement, what you don't know can't hurt you. 
You believe that? <laughs> Sometimes in particular, I'm not going to try to tell you what particular situation that might ring true, but that's probably as true as ignorance is bliss. That is not good either. So this morning, I'm going to talk to you about normal Christianity. And I'm not speaking about church life. I'm not talking about routines that we have in church. Because how many of you know that has changed over the years? I've been in church as much as I can remember about life. I've been in church. My mom's salvation when I was a toddler uh, I don't remember not being in church. I don't remember my dad getting saved, but my brother, my older siblings remember it. So I don't remember my dad being anything but saved and a man of God and a man of prayer and a man of passion. And, and so we were in church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every night of the revival, even those that went two and three weeks. Anybody remember those days? We don't do Sunday night. We kind of streamline things, and we just it's, it's a different normal for church. I'm not talking about church when I'm talking about normal Christianity. Our little church in Childersburg, Alabama, was my normal. Pastor E.B. Carter, and uh, he officiated our wedding. That was back in 1972. Great man. He's my model. I thought, I thought that's the consummate pastor right there. He let me hang out with him and stuff, and it's like, that's what pastoring's all about. And I never thought that I would be doing it, but he was my model of consistency. And then I went to Jacksonville State University for a year right out of, fresh, right out of high school over in Jacksonville, Alabama. That was uh, 69, 70, and that was way out of my normal. And every weekend, I hitched a ride home. I tried to find somebody that was going toward my direction. I said, I need to get out of this environment. I love my classes, but what was around me was outside of my comfort zone. I saw uh, marijuana for the first time. I saw people on LSD, which is acid, and there's a reason why they call it acid. I was like, I was in stuff. It was like, wow. And so I was just, I had to get home. You know where I wanted to get? My home church. I had to get back to Brother Carter. I had to get back to like, that's life. Right there, that's what I was at Monday through Friday. It's not life. If I could have just spent all my time in classes and in my economics class and all of the stuff that I loved, but it was after class, everything around me just kind of crowded me. And after that, I went on to Southeastern Bible College. I told you about Robert last Sunday. My, my buddy Robert, what a different world that was. And um, I miss my business. I really miss my studies. I wanted to go into business and economics and stuff. But here I am taking courses, and one of the courses I signed up for was a book was on the book of Romans. And that's where we're going to go, by the way, if you want to open your Bible. I signed up for Romans, and Dr. R. Paul Wood was the professor. Dr. Wood, incredible man of learning and knowledge. And I was in, boy, was I in for a ride in Romans. I thought I'd read Romans. But he required uh, extra reading. And the book that he required was a book titled The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. 
Some of you might be familiar with Watchman Nee. He wrote Spiritual Authority, wrote a little book on Ephesians called Sit, Walk, Stand. <clears throat> um, there was a number of books, but really and truly, it's kind of interesting because Watchman Nee really did not write the normal Christian life. He, he was a, a Chinese national um, Christian leader in China, and he was there when the communists overran China. Uh, before that happened in the 30s, around 37, 38, he was in Europe teaching and preaching. People were taking notes in that session. Those notes ended up in Bombay, India. Years later, and in 1957, people compiled those notes into the normal Christian life. He did not sit down and write this book, but there were all his notes on the book of Romans. He was teaching on Romans. Um, he was arrested as a Christian leader. Um, he died in prison in 1972. And, um, and all of these books came out of this man's incredible ministry. Watchman was not, of course, his given name, but it's easier to say that than the name that he went by. It was a signature moment in my life when I read that book. When I started reading that book, what I didn't know might not have hurt me, but it sure stunted my growth. Because what I learned in that book, along with going along, it's one of those... You can read a passage of scripture, but how many know it's different when you have that aha moment or that, as someone said, uh, that epiphany moment, that, that revelation moment where like the light comes on, you've read it and you're like, wow, that, I, I didn't realize it said that. And all of a sudden it's speaking to me. And I want to take you to Romans chapter six as a review of what is normal Christianity, And I want you to take a little bit of a, a, a bird's eye view of the book of Romans because Romans is totally different than any other of Paul's contribution to the New Testament. If you look at the way Romans ends, the last chapter, it talks about Phoebe as one of the leaders. And after her name, 34 other names of people are mentioned in that one chapter. And a couple of those names actually is, there's an expansion of, like, you know, you might have thought Rufus was a good old southern name, but that's a Bible name. Rufus is in that list. You let Brenda tell you one time she got an award at our church called the Rufus Award. It's a long story. I'm not going to bore you with that, but she got the Rufus Award. But when it... <laughs> When, she, when it mentions Rufus, it mentions his mother, but he doesn't mention her by name. I'm talking about 35 names appear, and then Aristobulus, he mentions him and his entire family. He said, and everybody in his household. I, so it's beyond 35. You don't see any other place other than Leviticus that many names. But it's talking about greet this person and greet that person. It's a totally different book. And there's like, it is so personal. He's writing in such a personal way. It's, he's writing to a church, but when he mentions that many people, he's writing to the people in that church. He's just not writing to an institution. He's writing to the collection of people. And many of them he mentions by name. 
meaning he wants them to know what he's writing is for them personally, not just as a group, but as individuals. So then when you go back and look at chapter 6, you realize that these things are interconnected. You have to get up to around chapter 9 before he starts going in a different direction in regard to Israel and, and the, the, what God's plan for Israel is, and, and he, and he kind of goes off on a different theme. But up and through chapter 8, it's all interconnected. And here's what I want to show you before we get into to chapter 6. If you go to the early part of chapter 5, I want you to read something with me. I'm going to read the very first verse. We're going to do this with 5, 4, 3, and 2, okay? So you can be ready for this. And then we're going to get to chapter 6. All of this is interconnected. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. But that word, therefore, means that it's a continuation of the effect of what precedes it. Someone said, when you see the word, therefore, you have to look there. That's before what he's saying. Based on what he just wrote, he says, therefore, it's foundational to what he's about to say as to what preference he gave to that. In chapter 4, verse 1, these are questions questions in four and three but in in verse one of chapter four he says what then shall we say that abraham our forefather according to the flesh discovered in this matter now it's obvious the question is about what preceded that something he was writing preceding this is the what can we say about abraham and if you know if you by chapter four he's talking about justification by faith and then he takes off on explaining that all of this is interconnected if you go to chapter 3, verse 1, he says, What advantage then is there being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Which means that he must have discussed that in the previous chapter, in chapter 2. So he's connecting all of these dots. And then if you get to chapter 2, you see that word therefore again. Chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore have no excuse... You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, he's, he's drawing on what he has written in chapter 1 as to there's no excuse. You've had a revelation of God. You should know the truth. The truth is there in front of you. And so you shouldn't be going around condemning people because you realize as you do that, you're doing the very things you're condemning people over. Romans is pretty much a mosaic of theology. A theology that defines what is normal Christianity. Let me tell you how abnormal, in some regard, our, Christian, our, Christ, our view of Christianity is today where we spend more time today in America discussing what kind of limits should be on sexuality and whether, and, and there's a growing number of pastors, they even polling pastors now that now defend same-sex marriage. And if you look at chapter 1, you're like, how can they do that? Because chapter 1 just blows that to pieces. 
It's a revelation. This is how, this is how abnormal of a Christianity we have a vein of in this country that we have that discussion. Or we have people asking questions, well, what's wrong with doing such and such? And it's kind of like stuff that you see more promoted in the world than you see in the church. And it's kind of like, well, what's wrong with that? Now I just saw that people in our age are the most increasing people in, in the America that is smoking pot. It's 65 and older. Did you see that report? And then you have people on television say, well, by this time in the night, they ought to deserve that. I said, have you people understood the psychosis that goes with smoking pot? That studies show that smoking pot, smoking weed, marijuana, whatever you want to call it. And I'm just fascinated by places like Colorado that just, they're just all over cigarettes, but they're out there promoting smoking that. Don't smoke cigarettes, but smoke that. And then we have people that's wanting to defend that. This is... You just see how abnormal we are in our discussion today as to whether this is right or wrong. Have we gotten so far from what this book says that we can't determine that? That we can't come to a conclusion that, you know what? I probably shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I shouldn't be reading what I'm reading. I shouldn't be exposing myself to certain things that are destructive. And the Bible is so clearly, and Paul begins, and listen, he's writing to one of the most decadent cities in his existence right then, Rome. But he's writing to believers in Rome saying, this is the normality that you should have for your faith. These are connecting dots, and the revelation is this. And when you get to chapter 6 and you see what's there in verse 1, you realize again he's drawing from everything that's been preceding that. Take a look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? <laughs> Depending on what we just went through, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Now that... It's kind of like describes how some people approach things today. Well, there's grace for me. I can do that, and God forgives me, and he understands nobody's perfect, and, you know, and I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect, and so this is my sin, and, and my sin is no different than his sin, and, and why should you criticize my sin when they do their sin? Do you, do you follow me? And this is, he's addressing this. He says, so you come to a place after he takes them all through what he says. And I'm telling you, Romans is a strategic book in the New Testament. So much so that in the 1400s, a Catholic priest had a revelation from Romans and was born again while he was praying and meditating on Romans. Martin Luther had a born again experience. And he championed that experience to everyone he could tell that it's not the, the rituals that we have in our church that binds you to Jesus. It's an authentic revelation of Christ through his word that binds you to him. And if you don't think that is impactful, just think about this. 300 years later, a very discouraged 
evangelist missionary that had been to the colonial place called Georgia to try to reach people with the gospel went back to England so discouraged, it's just a total collapse and failure. And on a Wednesday night, he was sitting in a church on Aldersgate and he heard the reading of Luther's preface to Romans and he had a born-again experience that radically changed his life. You might have heard of him. His name is John Wesley. Romans radically changed the most visible person in Reformation, Martin Luther, and one of the most visible people in revivals in the 1700s, John Wesley, all came out of Romans. And it wasn't Romans per se is what it tells us about what God has done for us. And I'm telling you, chapter 6, chapter 6 is loaded. It ought to hurt our minds trying to, to think about it. You ought, to, you ought to go through it. And I'm, I'm going to do something kind of out of character for me. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave my notes. Brenda, can you believe I'm going to leave my notes? Oh, Lord, help us. That's, those are my security, that's my security blanket. All right, here's verse two. By no means. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Follow this with me. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Is that a relevant question? And it's a question following a declaration. We died to sin. How, how, how did we die to sin? How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, not baptized in the water, and this is why baptism in water is so important because it's the picture of this. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You were immersed in his death. When? When were you immersed in his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If you're immersed in his death, you also are a candidate to be raised up in his new life. And if we have been united with him, oh, this gets so good. This gets so good. This is, there ought to be a, a surcharge for me even reading this to you. <laughs> we ought to pass the offering bags again and says, hey, I'll, I'll pay admission to hear this again. If we have been united with him like this in his death, this gets so good. We will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Now, verse 6 is the bomb that ought to explode on you into abject happiness, joy, wonder, mystery. Come on. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. We know. And if you look up that word no, it's the only place, just one of a few places where it's found in the book of Romans, but it is very strategic. It's gnosko. 
It's not idol. I don't mean I perceive or I think. I, I, you know, I know intellectually. Gnosko is different. You know by experience. It is how you come to know something that you know. <laughs> how about that? That's deep, isn't it? You know that you know. He says, we know, gnosko is a, a present participle meaning this is an ongoing knowing, it's an ongoing experience. We have experienced this, that our old self was crucified with him. Our old nature, what you and I battle, was put to death in him. So that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, I want to ask you, when did you die with him? When did you die with him? Because, see, this just this kind of bottles up in our mind. We're trying to process it like, oh, you know, okay, is this a trick question? No, it's obvious when we died with him. When he died. When he died, you were there. He said, no, I wasn't. Yes, you were. You and I were there. Because here's the interesting thing about when Jesus hung on the cross. He was there looking back to all of those who were justified by faith because they were looking forward to him. They didn't know it all, but this is what they did in sacrifice. They was like, this is how costly my sin is. And they knew that God needed to forgive them and they would have Yom Kippur, the day of atonement where the priest would go in, the whole country, whole nation was declared forgiven. And it was a celebration. But those who really knew what was going on looked forward to when that would really be the case. Where there would no longer be Yom Kippur, no longer an animal sacrifice, no longer a priest putting hands on an animal and confessing the sins of the people of Israel and, the, and people taking that animal out into the wilderness and letting go as a sign that your sins are now being removed from the nation. No longer would that be necessary. All of those people, in, b before the crucifixion, Jesus was hanging there for them as well. He wasn't hanging there for just the people at that, that point in time. And forward, he was there in between time. Time inter was intersected right then. And see, we are, we're just so time conscious. It's like 11.53. It shows me on that TV. It's 11.53. We, we go by time, right? And at 12 o'clock, we start getting hungry, and we're ready to go. We can't wait because we're so time-oriented. I mean, we look at our watch. We want to like, wow, what's, what's, way, why, what's keeping them? And, and we have no, no concept of what he's saying here. But if you get this, if you get this, if, if the light comes on, think about, the resulting effect that anyone who died with him has been set free from sin, that we're no longer slaves to sin. And Flip Wilson was wrong. And here I'm dating myself again. 
Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. And that's, that's how he excused it. I, I didn't do that. The devil made me do it. We don't use that anymore. <laughs> you know, the devil doesn't need our help very much. Because we can, we can do a pretty good mess just on our own. But where are, we, where are we standing in that? And I think, I think, if anything, the devil doesn't want you to get this. I think this book, this book and praying are the two greatest things he fears. Because this is God talking to you, and when we're praying, we're talking to God. And that's, like, that's the worst that we could be doing, is reading God's word and praying. But watch this. Now, if we died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. For we know, for we know, this is the road to normality. You got to know what makes for normal Christianity. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. You know what that means? In the same way. In the same way that works, his life works. And what does that empower you and I to do? In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. We can make the call on that, but not on our power, not on our determination, not on our convincing ourselves, but on the truth of his word. And when we look at that and say, you know what? He told me I'm free from that. And he's not going to tell me anything that's not true. I'm free from that. And this is, this is where Teen, teen Challenge has really kind of set the bar on people getting really free from drug addiction. Because it's not, it's not the chemical, it's the spiritual side of it. It's the lordship side of it. That when Jesus, I told a, a heroin addict in Jackson, I've never seen tracks on a person's arm, and still this day I've never seen, but he had tracks up and down his arm, and he was shooting up with heroin, coming to our church. Trying to tell me, now, you know, I, I've tried everything. It's just hopeless for me. I'm stuck. I can't get rid. I can't let, let go of this. It's got a hold to me. And, and the whole time, I didn't know what to tell him. I'm, I've been praying for him. And I looked at him. I said, you know what the, the problem is? You need to get on to something else. You need to get addicted to Jesus. And I said, well, that's just, uh, you know. That's just words. No, I was like, you need, you don't need, he got off all that, all this time, and he'd go right back to it. And I said, the reason is you're getting off of something, but not onto something. You get onto this, and that guy, that guy got delivered. It wasn't because of what I told him, it was because the truth, the truth set him free. That he was being, he was telling himself, and everything else was telling him, even the people that was treating him was telling him, it's kind of like, Alcoholics Anonymous. You're always going to be an alcoholic. Really? There's no, there's no finality with God? He can't deliver you permanently? He can't rename you? 
He can't break that off your life. This will tell you that he's done everything you and I need to get us free from our problems. This is normal Christianity. This is where life can be lived. This is where we have peace. We have dynamics going on in our life that's unexplainable other than God's doing it. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Oh, but look at the follow-up. But rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Other and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law. You're under grace. Where would I be? He only knows. I'm glad he sees through eyes of love. A hopeless case, an empty place, if not for grace. You and I can walk through life excusing ourselves and excusing our weaknesses when God is telling us something different. When he's telling, identify with my death and you'll identify with my resurrection. You consider yourself dead to that and you watch what life comes behind it. The things that you said, well, that's just, that's in my DNA. My heritage is Scottish, redheads. We are bad-tempered people. And we're going to lose our temper whether we want to or not. <laughs> Brenda's redheaded. I've never seen her lose her temper. She's as easy going. I'm, I don't think I've ever heard her raise her voice. I'm telling you the truth. Now, she's probably shouting at me inside because I kind of I feel something <laughs> when that's going on. But she had every reason in the world to be high-tempered, according to what people say about Scott-Irish people. You see how we do things? And we kind of like, well, my daddy was this way and my mom was this way or somebody is that way and there's alcoholism in my family and I guess I'm, I'm going to have to wrestle this. No, because you've been born again. You've got a different parentage that's been grafted into your life. You died with him on the cross. This, this, doesn't, this didn't happen last week. When he died on the cross, you were there. He saw me, he saw you, all of us were there. Everybody that would ever come along after that, he was there for them. He was dying for their sins, but he was also dying for their life. He was dying so that you and I could live and live life abundantly. That is normal Christianity. Is not arguing over stupid stuff that doesn't matter. It's not trying to figure out how close can I get to the world without becoming part of the world when you ought to be, your amp on your light ought to be intensifying, not going dim. And the more we give ourselves them, I'm just telling you, I dare you to read Romans. How about that? I just dare you. And I dare you to read ch chapter 6. And I know what chapter 7 says. It's almost, almost like Paul gets to chapter 7 and says, well, let me just tell you how it's like if you don't do what I'm telling you. You're going to be a miserable wreck. Oh, wretched man that I am. 
That's how he kind of verses in chapter 7, we think it gives us an excuse to be wretched. The end of that was God delivered him from that. And then there's wonder, there's chapter 8. If you can't squeeze life out of chapter 8, I don't know. Lord, I thank you this morning. We're not lacking for truth, but what we are lacking, Lord, is to grab it. To seize on your revelation. That you took care of the sin issue that we wrestle with. We battle it. And yet we are told to consider ourselves dead to that and alive in you. Lord, we just worship you. We honor you that the praise team can come up. Just, just close your eyes and think about, Lord, what, what do you want to do in me? Where do you want to start working in me? Maybe I've, I've just kind of built a, a barrier there. Rip that barrier down. It surge into my soul. Lord, I pray for the healing of mind and soul here. There's, there's many that need healing in their bodies, but there's sometimes, Lord, we just need our minds healed and we need our souls healed. We need our emotions healed because they play such a big role in how we see things and act and decisions we make. We go by feeling so much. Lord, would you help us to get past that? to just accept your word on the basis that it says what it says. Whether we feel like we died on that cross with you, it doesn't matter. If we feel like it, that still doesn't matter. It just means that you, we died in that place with you. We, the strength of sin was canceled out on that cross. The, the power of sin was destroyed. The thing that we think we cannot get over was crucified on the cross. It died with you. That revelation is for people here. That you took care of that. You took care of that way before they were even born. You knew the future that all of us have lived and you know the future beyond this. And you saw everything in advance and you died for us. You died in our place and you died for us for the entirety of our life. However many days we have passed today, you died for those days. You died for the decisions that we'll make. You died for the way we think about things. You died for all of that so that sin will not have dominion over us, so that we not be a slave to something that's been dead, to something that has no power in and of itself. Your resurrection life is what gives us power. It is the very life that we have. We have no life without you. So I pray today, Lord, for those who really need the healing inside their soul, a release of life in them to heal them, Lord, to free them from the defeatism that they've wrestled with for years maybe and the lies of the evil one piling in on top of that when that book tells us the truth that we died with you and your blood justifies us 
your cross releases us from a life of bondage, a life of slavery. And you told us to offer our bodies to you as instruments in your hands, Lord. Would you stand with me?